This podcast is brought to you by the Common Mission Project. Hello, and welcome to the Common Mission Project podcast series. Joining me today is my co-host, Rodrigo. Hello, Rodrigo. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm good. How are you today? Very good. It's been, a, it's been an interesting week. So let's, let's uh, and we have a, an interesting topic to talk about. We do, yeah. So this is going to be a topic that I think we're, we're introducing by things that Rodrigo and I have experienced in the classroom over years of teaching this and also working with other faculty members. So this is an area that's certainly not been experienced in a vacuum, but we're going to talk about solutioneering. And you may have heard a different terminology and we'll get into that, but this is a, this is a subject that I think we experience every semester. And I probably would fair to say that almost every faculty member has experienced this type of uh, discovery process and in, in their in their tenure of teaching a hacking for class is that fair, Rodrigo? I, I think that's correct. I, in 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 one way, the what we call solutioneering will define it and talk about it. But this idea of students jumping to solutions before understanding the problem is probably the most important phase of the discovery process that requires mentoring and intervention by the faculty. Right, I, I, the biggest challenge we frequently confront us professors teaching a hacking for class or any any kind of lean launchpad or lean uh, uh, approach to entrepreneurship is to convince students that uh, they have to take it slow and that right. there are steps before getting to even think about what the solution to a problem might be. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into the, the a definition here in a little bit, but we we want to talk about in this particular episode is we're going to cover reasons around why this happens. And Rodrigo kind of mentioned around the discovery process. That's that's an area we'll, we'll jump into what the implications are for us teaching this course, uh, as well as some ways to help student teams identify that this is happening preemptively so that they're not getting into flipped classroom setting and presenting a solutioneering type um, you know approach. How, exactly. You know how we say that training is what you do in order to learn to act against your instincts so we all run from the fire but we train firefighters so they run towards it mm -hmm. this is one of those places where really training matters because we all have a tendency especially people who with an entrepreneurial desire right which probably self-select for classes like this one we are dealing with a very natural tendency to immediately match a problem or what we think is a problem with a solution and it requires deliberate effort by the faculty and then by the student to internalize it to go against what is this natural desire. So training and education in a hacking for environment, I would say a big percentage of the desired outcome is to learn to rein on that, on that natural tendency to try to jump into a solution as fast as possible. No, absolutely right. And I think this is and I think the implications are far broader than just hacking for right. And I experienced this in a professional capacity where there's an issue that's bubbled up and the team leadership immediately wants to go into, into coming up with a solution. And, and they're very hesitant to say, well, do we actually understand what the problem is? And that's the heart of what we're going to be getting at today in, in some ways. So I, I just want to this the applicability here is far beyond just hacking for but as educators, we have the responsibility for students to have that design thinking approach to everything that they're doing, take a step back and surveil. And I think that's the kind of approach we're going to take with our discussion today in part. It's a it's a life lesson, right? There is this fake quote that people like to attribute to Albert Einstein that if I had an hour to fix a problem, I would spend 59 minutes 
understanding the problem and one minute uh, uh, building the solution. I've never been able to find the source for it. So I'm, I'm assuming it's one of those, it's, it's internet lore, uh, but right, nevertheless, right. it seems to be a, a, a good idea here of what we're describing here that beyond just entrepreneurship and lean, just building this internal capacity to better understand, understand situations, issues, and problems. It's a fantastic uh, conflict resolution mechanism and a fantastic skill set to have for life. Absolutely. So we're going to take a step back a little bit. And one of the things that we're going to start with is like, what is a problem? And I think that's in a, in a, in a fundamental part of, of, well, of any, any, any solution path is understanding what a problem is. So I'm going to go back to Steve Blank's book, uh, you know, the startup owner's manual. Again, another one of those ones that you hear us call out on this, on the show, go read it if you haven't. It's a tremendous resource. It's one of those ones that we use as a textbook in the classroom for a reason. But Steve calls out four specific types of problems. And I'm not going to go through the description here. Again, go get the book, um, or you probably already know, uh, latent problems. You have passive problems, you have active or urgent problems, and you have visions. So what Steve is really doing in this, in this particular case is he's saying that there are four types of problems. And before you can get into solutioning of any kind, you have to understand what kind of problem you have first. How do you get, how do you understand what a problem is? Discovery. This is a primary way of being able to do that. Discovery through interviews, discovery through uh, research, any number of different ways to really uncover what a truth is. So let's, let's start from there. You have to understand what your problem is and how do you do that? It's by discovery. And we've talked about this a lot of times, right, Rodrigo? So what do you, what's a fundamental problem that you see uh, in the classroom about just not students not understanding what the problem really is? And what does that, so, what does that do to us? So a, a sponsor will come up with a potential description of a problem. And, and even the vocabulary is problematic because that's what we call them, right? We're, we're sourcing problems, right? We tell that. Uh, in reality is the problem that the sponsor has and the problem that the teams identify might not be the same. So we start Absolutely. by saying, here is a problem space. We probably don't have a better word, so we'll have to keep using both of them. But what we're saying here is we have a need, right? So there is a need expressed by, by the people doing the job uh, that somehow would like the job to be done differently. And what we then try to show to the students is, okay, get out of the building and start doing stuff in the form of MVPs, interviews, all of those fun things that we have talked about in previous episodes in <laughs> order to better understand the problem. Now, what ends up happening is something different, is I give you the problem. My natural uh, uh, tendency is to accept the problem as real and immediately jump to conclusions. And the discovery process becomes almost a validation process so I can exactly. confirm what I already know the solution for your problems is. This, by the way, is something that even for our faculty uh, members who might be listening, who have never taught until now a Hacking for program, you will identify if you have mentored ever a master student uh, thesis, uh, how fast a student will want to come with solutions when they haven't yet even done the lead review of the problem is the mm -hmm. exact same kind of behavior that we're describing here. A student will identify what he thinks or she thinks the problem is and immediately choose what he or she thinks the solution is. And then everything he or she does gets filtered through the lens of the solution that he or she has already in mind. And what we're trying to say here is nope, uh, reel back and chill learn more about the problem, let the exchanges, the interaction with the beneficiaries 
tell you what the problem is before you commit to any kind of solution-driven uh, activity. Uh, no, I think that's a, a very good point. And the one thing that I always say in my first class, I give the same example every semester because I think it's a good one. And it was given to me by somebody else, uh, uh, a, coll a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Pelletier. One of the things that I that I tell the students is you get a technical problem. Let's just say in I, my university, we typically have a lot of technical based uh, problems. And I, I tell them this. If the answer was as simple as putting Linux code on a Raspberry Pi and deploying it at scale, don't you think they would have done that? And I get a lot of blank stares. And uh, and, yep. and I, I let the students, I, I let them have the awkward silence for, for a moment there. And then I come back and say, this is why I'm telling you, A, you don't know what the problem is because the sponsor doesn't know what the problem is, more than likely. And if you go into trying to provide a solution to the problem that hasn't been described yet, you're going to yep. be losing a lot of time and making a lot of bad decisions along the way because you've already married yourself to moving forward on something that you don't understand. It's a risk. But the implications there are, again, we're talking national security problems. We want to get this right. At least go down the right path. So that's such an important issue here, right? And and we we talk about solutioneering, but if you think, for example, we talked in previous episodes about the the, the, the contrast between waterfall versus any kind of iterative learning cycle that Lean is based on. That's partly one of the problems of waterfall. You will get a committee of very smart people who will come up with a requirements list before ever interacting with beneficiaries. They will put it in some kind of request for proposals, will go out to the lowest bidder, uh, the bids will be, the, the, the execution will be done, and seven months later, you will have for the first time contact with the customer that was solutioneering now hopefully the smart people in the room seven months ago got it right and therefore you will have a fantastic product right uh, more times than not what happens is that you missed a lot of very critical important details that you needed to know about the problem you missed externalities that you 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 did not understand or you created unintended consequences that you knew nothing about and now you have to deal with the consequences of all these mistakes that you made 20 years later that's what happens when you solutioneer, when you jump into a solution before working the problem. What Lean is trying to do, what we're trying to do in Hacking 4, is to take a different approach, but that, requir that requires a little bit of humility. That requires yes. for people to say, I don't know what the answer is, but I'll find together with you working on this problem. Yeah, and I think that's an important part here is that and this is something that I think students oftentimes do quite well is they have humility because they recognize that they just don't know, but they also have that natural tendency to come up with a solution because I think that that's how in general education for works us to be is that we go be solution oriented versus being pragmatist again, in such a way that's saying like, okay, we don't really know what's going on here. We need to make, we need to take a step back and understand the domain. So there's a lot of different tools and everything, but the, the biggest thing I, I recommend for our faculty members is day one, impress upon the student teams that they can't go on the solutioning and solutioning. They're going to, they're going to do their hypotheses testing, which again, we talked about in a previous episode, they're going to do all these different things, but the hypotheses testing is not being wed to a solution space and not going down a, down a path that hasn't been validated. That discovery process is going to allow them to, to validate, you know, a big bucket of things down to a few simple uh, targets that they can go down and then ultimately come up with a solution here. But that only happens when the students get out of the classroom and go into those interactions. And it only happens when they're challenging their hypotheses and finding individuals in that solution space. So I just, I again, advocate for you day one, 
in, in, when you're introducing yourself to your students, you're going through what the program is. Talk about this and talk about the risks, because if you can get ahead of this early on, it's an opportunity for your students not to do it or to recognize when they're doing it so that they can talk about it and saying, hey, listen, we're having X, Y and Z issues. And we'll talk about a little bit of this in a little bit in a little bit later. But how I, I'm kind of feeling like now I'm going down a path I shouldn't be. Let the students have some self-awareness. And I think that's an important piece here. Yep, I completely agree. And and it goes even one step before from, from understanding the problem. It's even knowing that you're solving the right problem. We have many examples from successful hacking for uh, for hacking for uh, projects where the problem they end up solving is one that is very different from the original one. So do you Absolutely. know what the problem you should be solving is? Do you understand it? And one thing that you and I were discussing the other day is uh, first of all, is a problem solvable, right? This is what sometimes the literature calls these gravity problems, or this is just like gravity. You cannot solve gravity, so you just have to deal with it. Right. Uh, and it's worth solving. Yeah, you could solve it, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. So whatever, we will uh, embrace the suck and, and, and stay where we are because the costs of solving the problem just don't justify solving it. Well, all of these are things that you will never know. If you see the problem and you kind of what you said, okay, I know what kind of code I have to put in the Raspberry Pi uh, and and uh, and I'll start coding that and start showing it to my beneficiaries just to convince them, right? And that's the other part. So the students become uh, sellers instead of interviewers where right. they're pitching their product to try to convince the beneficiary that this is the best thing ever since sliced bread instead of being in a reception mode willing to learn and uh, uh, interact and change. Absolutely. And I think that, that there's that, again, for all of us, we want to provide value. And I think a lot of the ways we've been conditioned to provide value is by providing solutions to difficult problems. And the reality here for us is part of working with these government agencies. If you're a hacking for impact uh, educator, you know, working on these really important social issues is that the value there is understanding the problem to a much more granular extent, not just the solution space, because again, going back to the point we made right now are made in this episode is that I have very rarely had a problem that hasn't pivoted multiple times throughout the semester. And what does that tell you? What does that tell me as an educator? What does it tell me as somebody who's standing there in the classroom? You can't solution day one because we don't know what, what's really going on in this domain. You have to understand the domain. The students have to get some deep understanding before they can go into the, hey, here's a path we can go down. It's just, there, it's, it's impractical and implausible otherwise. And that's just my experience and uh, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. <laughs> I, I completely agree. And, and and this is, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've, been, we've been seeing this uh, since the beginning of the lean movement. In fact, this is one of the things that founders in startups struggle the most because once you, you, you put co code and sweat into something, it's really hard to abandon and let go. And that's fairly understandable, but that's exactly what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, our listeners might, depending on their background, might remember the work of Carol Dweck, right? She's the one who came up with the terms of growth, growth mindset and fixed mindset. Mm -hmm. And and that's more or less... So I, I, have, I have compared the issue of solutionism to a kind of fixed mindset in which it's really hard then to go beyond uh, the things that you thought you knew versus a growth mindset that allows you to uh, improve through effort and experience. 
And it's that experiential component that makes makes Lean so powerful that we want to make sure that we have and preserve. So in many ways, creating a startup or a hacking for team with a growth mindset will translate into a team willing to uh, experiment and learn and pivot and change, which is exactly the kind of behavior that we want to look. So again, another another potential source of understanding of the problem we're defining. Uh, we all have fixed mindsets in certain areas. We think that Absolutely. we're experts. We think that we are comfortable and it's really hard and we have to work hard against it. This is exactly what we're describing here and why solutioneering is such an important problem because if we don't t- tackle it, and frankly, if we don't tackle, tackle it early in any particular offering, what ends up happening uh, is that some of the uh, effort for discovery becomes almost ritualistic and and students don't care about it. And mm-hmm. what they want is to build their gizmo. Uh, exactly. And what we want is to flip that priority from uh, prototyping to uh, discovery. Exactly. And I think it's so we're going to jump in some really important points here, but I want to. So as I was, we were researching this episode, I'm, you know, going through and finding some different and I found a great article on LinkedIn and a, a product designer by name D. Keith Robinson uh, described solutioneering as, as this, the practice of practice of working up a solution prior to really understanding the problem that the solution is set to solve. So there's our common definition, and that's kind of what we're going off of. And now you had a couple of elements here, Rodrigo, that we were in preparation that I wanted to discuss here before we get into our, what can we do to kind of help in this area and and, and what's our, our suggestions to help our faculty out. So I'll kick it back over to you on, on some of these things. Yeah. So, so there is this, this, and, and we are in the world of the tech lash, right? So after, after, after 2018 and some of our, our, uh, dissolution, disappointment with 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 Silicon Valley. So there is this counter movement. Well, not everything can be solved with technology, and we can agree with that. Although we have to really talk about what technology is, right? And this sure, is something that point. we were talking. So Kelly, in 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 his fantastic book, What Technology Wants, he makes the point that uh, well, if uh, a thousand lines of Linux uh, is technology. A thousand lines of Python is technology. Well, a thousand lines of the English language in the U.S. Constitution is also technology, right? It's it's trying to change the way we interact with our environment and the kind of rules that we set. Nation statehood is a kind of technology. The production mm-hmm. line that Henry Ford created, a process, is a kind of technology. So if we broaden our definition of technology to the ways in which humans transform through different tools, some of those tools are hardware, some of those tools are software, and by software I mean things beyond just a computer language, then it is true that not everything is solvable through technology, but a lot of things are solvable through technology. And that means understanding what are the problems that you're trying to solve. One of the things that discovery does really well is that it shows us when, 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 when we're in the right, at the right path, but it also goes and discovers what I already mentioned, the externalities and the mm-hmm. unintended consequences. Right. We solve with with the invention of the combustion engine and the automobile. We really solve a transport a major transportation problem. Uh, now we could go from point A to point B uh, with with uh, uh, easiness, and and we we shrank the size of the distances that humans uh, experienced. We also triggered a process that later on will give us uh, climate change and 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 the problems associated to putting. Uh, tons upon tons of CO2 emissions in the air. So right, that's right. something that tells you, yeah, you might solve the problem that you're trying to solve, but you will create uh, externalities that maybe are worth also considering. 
if you are committed to a solution before you test it, you will never know that's the case until it's too late and you have deployed. Exactly. So I think that's, that's an important point here that, that what Rodrigo was making here. So we got this great framework around what is solution is uh, solutioneering. What are the, some of the risks here? So let's let's get into how can we help our faculty and, and ultimately uh, positively impact our student uh, experience by getting out of the solutioneering mindset. So one area that's very interesting that's it's an interesting dynamic in the H four classes in particular, and this does happen, is what happens when a sponsor dictates a solution. It happens. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very interesting. It's it, yeah, it's 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 one of those things that does happen. So, Rodrigo, why don't you uh, we're both kind of smirking over this one. But like, let's let's talk a little bit. I'll give you the I'll give you the floor first here. But what happens when a sponsor says the students are doing this for me? What do you, wh how do you approach that? Yeah, this is a I mean, this is a, a big issue and something we've been discussing and, and we've been trying to work hard with the sponsors so they understand that, that why that's a problem. <laughs> Talk about problems. This is very meta uh, and, and, and we're probably getting better, but you're completely right that um, it is normal. So solution mm -hmm. can happen at all steps of the process with the faculty, by the way. We're other actors that might inject our views of what a solution might be or should be. Absolutely. And, we force them. and the sponsors are not exempt of that. So when they come to us, many of them are project managers of very important project programs of record. They've done this multiple times, but they've done it the, the old way. Mm -hmm. And their, their natural tendency, the way they do with national labs, is to come up with a requirement. And I'll already let you know what kind of solution is the one that would be desired and signal very strongly to some of our students that have very little experience uh, dealing with uh, important people with authority in the military. So they mm -hmm. may be easily pressured into, into accepting that as, 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 as the truth. And I would say that part of the challenge as a faculty is to guide the students in their interactions with the sponsors, try to signal to the sponsors that what they think the problem is and what the problem is might not be the same. And thus, our teams should have all the opportunity to explore potential alternatives. And the solution might be a sensor or a computer or a piece of cardboard or a policy change. And we will not know what all those are the right approaches until our students have had the opportunity to do what they've been uh, tasked and trained to do, which is to run a discovery process. So that's, that's I think, uh, the first bad signal that we might get from a sponsor that needs to be corrected early, and sometimes it's just part of the learning process for the sponsor uh, himself or herself, is to say, hey, we understand you, you understand your problem space. We certainly need you as a subject matter expert. We want access to your people, but please, do not presume already that you know the answer to the question that you don't even know what the question is at this point. Exactly. So this is something that what I do uh, in my introductory emails to each of my sponsors before the semester even kicks off is kind of let them know the quote unquote ground rules of what I'm expecting the interaction to look like with the, with the students. And part of that is saying you're not going to dictate a direction for them because we're not here to build them a prototype. Their students are not there to do anything beyond that MVP process. So it's getting level setting on all of that. And I will say BMNT, NSIN, CMP, they're working really hard with the sponsors to help mitigate this. But you do have individuals who come in, like like Rodrigo was saying, who are very close to the topic or they've they've had um, the problem has been pervasive and it's been significant in their in their world. So it's one of those things where it's a good lesson for the students to like, how do you talk to somebody who is really like really singularly focused on a solution to say, I hear you, but 
and making sure they do that. So it is also a good tactic about uh, to teach the students how to interact professionally with somebody uh, that is in a position of authority or in a perceived position of authority uh, to say, like, I'm listening to you. I hear you. Your concerns are valid and they're noted. Here's all the research we did. Here's all the discovery we did. And here's the direction we're going to be going down because of the the data saturation points that we're hitting. And I think it's an important lesson in that respect of how to deal with people and and authority. Completely right. I mean, the the big virtue of project-based learning, like hacking for programs, is that they open the opportunity to experience, not, not only to learn. And what that means is that we will all have in our different careers uh, the uh, moment in which we will be do- dealing with a stubborn boss, a stubborn customer that thinks that he or she knows your job better than you and has, and you certainly need to learn this finesse that's required to at the same time keep mm-hmm. your key partners uh, within your coalition while at the same time being able to signal that uh, what they want and what you know what they want might not be the same thing. Now, the best tool that we have available to do that is precisely the process of discovery because Mm -hmm. that will give you the foundational evidence that you need to say, sir, I hear you, it's interesting, but out of the 40 interviews we have conducted and out of the three different MVPs we have presented, here is where the data goes. Uh, You might remember the anecdote of Marisa Myers, so the uh, former a vice president of user experience in Google that later on went and have some issues with Yahoo. Uh, but uh, that, that she she entered the room and there were these two, one engineer and one designer discussing about the appropriate shade of blue to using the links that Google Chrome would present to you. And one wanted one because it was better for engineering reasons and the other liked the design better. And she mm-hmm. went and said, well, uh, why don't you give me 20 million impressions of one color, 20 million impressions of the other, and tell me which one gets more clicks and that's the one we're choosing, right? This is one way of deactivating what very easily can become almost ideological debates based oh, absolutely. on uh, preconceptions and saying, let us go, sir, to where the evidence is taking us. Let's see what the job that needs to be done is. So this is why the uh, the the value proposition canvas is so important. So if I have a good understanding of your value proposition, I know the jobs that you have to do. I know the pain points that you are uh, uh, feeling. I know the gains that you want to achieve. So I have all that. Let me find a good value proposition for you. Let me go and find a product mission fit for you. But I might find it in places where you don't expect them. Exactly. And this comes back to you have to level set with your sponsors. Now, is a caveat here. You have a sponsor that leaves, right? This happens. They're military. They might go to a different duty station. And again, our, our organizations that are working with yep. these are really trying hard to prevent these things. But if you have a part, if you have a particularly negative situation, I I have to advocate that you work with your uh, sponsors. If you're working hacking for defense, you're working with Ensign. Reach out to your to your to your teams there. They will help. So you have to know at what point you say, okay, I'm drawing a line here. I'm going to be requesting assistance. Uh, it's not really in our, as a faculty perspective, it's not really there us to manage that that sponsor relationship. Let the folks at Ensign or uh, Common Mission Project uh, come in and help out. So if it gets to a point where you're like, I can't, it's an untenable relationship or the sponsor is not, whatever, any negative thing there, use the resources you have. So just as a caveat on the back end there, but get ahead of that. Yep. Um, so- we, we have mentioned it, right? So the, the, the faculty team is like a 
board of directors. I would say it's a board of directors slash uh, slash um, um, uh, uh, venture capitalist firm, and therefore it's important that we understand that because of that particular nature of board of directors and uh, and uh, venture capitalist firm, part of your job is to coach and help your your team, your startup. And if that right, means right. sometimes saying we have a bad deal and we have to get out of it, uh, uh, by all means, do it, right? Your responsibility as a faculty should always be first and foremost with your students. They are your primary uh, customer and the person you... But ultimately, you are not alone in that process, to your point here. There is a team here and stuff happens, right? And if mm -hmm. things happen, there's a ton of learning opportunities that you still can create as a faculty member to describe what was a suboptimal relationship and what to do with it. Now, the ideal thing is that as we work and we, we polish, we build, measure, and learn, we get better at dealing with this specific, uh, specific issue. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So something that Rodrigo mentioned previously, too, is now how does solutioning happen? One of the ways is lack of discovering. So if you're, let's just call it, you, you, I've had it happen in the classroom. I'm sure anybody listening here has had it happen. You've got a student team who's just not doing discovery. You're, you're five weeks into the semester and your group of five has got six interviews done, right? You're, you're sitting there, you're yeah. sweating it out. You're like, you're about to go through oh, yeah. mid-semester, mid you know, to have the teams come in and do the observations. And you're like, what is going on here? And they sit there and they do their presentation and they've got, they're going down a solution path. And you're, and you're, you're sitting there wondering, how, how do you have a solution when you've talked to no one? Three people. So, yeah. yeah, right. So this is another way that solutioneering happens. The lack of discovery. Yeah. And go ahead, please. Rodrigo. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and it can be symptom or 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 consequence. Right. So uh, you might not have discovery because you don't believe in it because you already know what the solution is and you're just mm -hmm. full steam ahead. Or you might not have done enough discovery because you got busy, because you didn't prioritize it, because the teams got, they, they were slacky, whatever. And therefore, you don't have material then to come up with a solution. So you have to kind of wing it and fake it. So in yeah. both directions, either because you, you were so committed to your solution, so you know that uh, uh, that's what is causing the last of this lack of discovery or the lack of discovery creates the consequence of not being able to come with solutions that would be in both cases lack of discovery becomes this big red warning light that tells you that you're gonna be ha you're gonna be dealing with a team that uh, will be uh, limited in their capacity to come up with solutions based on experiences so they will be producing this out of thin air and you will be seeing a team solutioneering. So the big thing here, again, is you have to impress upon your students the getting out of the classroom aspect of this matters. Yeah. It matters. And it's very important because we, we I've seen I've seen I've had my own experience where students aren't going in and doing discovery and and I will sit there and, and during the, the, the flip classroom when I'm reviewing and saying, how are you getting there? And you really yeah. think apart the, and you, this is where you have to be like that, you know, you have to be very direct, relentlessly direct, as we like to say, and you have to ask, like, how are you getting there? What is informing all of this? And you have to ask them this very clearly. And you'll find that if they don't do discovery, they don't have a good answer. Uh, the student groups who do more discovery are often more pragmatic in their approach because they say, you know, I talked to, I've got an archetype that I've built with this, you know, that I've built out over these number of interviews. And I've got another archetype who's similar but different. 
and the solution spaces are kind of oil and water at this point. Like, good. That means you're go- that means that you're testing your hypotheses well, which is kind of the the next point here is discovery is great, but if you're not testing hypotheses as part Correct. of discovery, then why are you doing discovery? And that's a, that's another fundamental part. Are you are the students doing these discovery sessions correctly? And I think that's another fundamental piece here we have to talk about. And that's well, that's the the, the, the tyranny of metrics, right? So when we when we are on not careful and we just say, okay, we want 10 interviews per week or we want you to, and we don't tell them why, then they will check the list and they'll be very serious about it. It's a different kind of theme profile that you described. So it's good that you brought it. Mm-hmm. And they'll go out and, and they'll talk because we've been taught, we told them that they have to talk and they'll do it, but they don't know what they're doing it. Right. So they'll have great conversations about a lot of stuff and they explore all the periphery of the problem space. And, and there was never a deliberate effort to come up with a very well-crafted hypothesis to test it as part of those interactions. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another kind of solutioneering because what, what, you, what you are going to end up is with four or five net notebooks of ethnological analysis, no, not even analysis, uh, the recollections of experiences, which, which are going to be very fun to read and interesting but are going to not necessarily be getting you any closer to any kind of MVP that would take you to the next generation of MVPs to know that you are in the process of building something or co-creating something with your uh, with your uh, beneficiaries. So going out and not having a hypothesis to test, I wouldn't say that it's a it's not as bad as not going out at all. But it is, it is it is it is it is a it's it is it's it's all it's below it, right? So you you really want to impress on students, hey guys, here is here is what you need to do before you go. Make sure that you know what you're trying to prove or learn. Uh, I just made a mistake there, not to prove. Make sure that you are going out not to prove something, but you're going there to learn something, to learn something and right. be clear about it. So a great great point there, yeah. And, and the one caveat I'll have with that is first couple of weeks of the semester, yeah, just get going kind of nebulous conversations it helps inform the domain so they can actually get the hypothesis testing but you know as 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 you're getting through you know week seven week eight and you're getting close to mid or near the end of the semester and there are no hypotheses that are being tested how are the students going to come up with a solution i think that's the thing that you have to ask them so this is where when you're in the class when you're doing your uh your direct feedback of your students you have to be Uh, comfortable with poking holes and things and asking these questions. And, you know, and then I also offer this too. And I ask my students, you know, all the time, are you not getting discovery because you're not making the reach outreach? Yeah, that's sometimes true. I've had students will tell me, I just didn't have it in me this semester. And I, I recognize that. I appreciate the honesty. Are you having a lot of people ghosting you? Are there, is there sociopolitical things that are going on that are precluding your particular sponsor from getting involved? That happens, right? Imagine if you have a, a technical partner in FEMA or the uh, for yep. our NGA or National Weather Service, and it's middle of hurricane season. Well, there's going to be resources who are going to be tied up in in their day jobs. So, but you students- see, that's the value of discovery, Jim. You right. should know, for example, that whatever kind of solution that you're trying to be deployed, well, you'll have a harder time to do it during hurricane season. And that's something that you have a great point. If you're doing any kind of emergency management related project, uh, well, be sure that you understand the seasons in which the, the, the 
job tends to become more complicated or for those in the hacking for homeland defense programs well cbp has seasons right because immigration including clandestine immigration uh, follows seasonal patterns nobody wants to cross the desert of arizona in the middle of july it's hot so it's so so their workload might go down but then february march april that's when a lot of their workload comes in so if your project requires you to be and having access to those individuals in a regular basis during their uh, high season well be aware of that and and if you you can't change it, and if you know you cannot change it, you have found an important externality that you needed to factor. Uh, you would not have learned that without a real uh, discovery process. Absolutely. So then there's a couple of, uh, another point here too, but I do want to, uh, I think probably a lot of people listening have listened to Evgeny uh, Marazov. We're not going to go too deep into uh, into the material here, but there is yep. something called solutionism. And this is a conversation, Rodrigo, you and I had as we were preparing for this this episode. But solutionism, which is, I think, related in to the solutioneering uh, type idea we have here. And and what 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 Marizov kind of has here is he talks about solutionism is solving everything with technology. And I think the one thing that we have to be here is I go back to my Raspberry Pi point. If it was as simple as putting Linux code on a Raspberry Pi, the government would have done that. The students have to take the problem statement, move themselves away from it and say, do I have a cultural problem? Do I have a policy problem? Do I have a process problem? And it's amazing to me how often organizations conflate uh, process and technology with each other and thinking that if, hey, if you just build me an automation, this will this will solve my issue. And as an example, I have this happen to you know my day job in my in previously where it's, I need you to build this out for me. Okay, uh, where's your documentation on your process that you follow? We don't have it. Well, you don't have a technology problem today. You have a process problem today. Once you document your process, we will be glad to build an automation for you. But you have to have somebody who knows, like, I can build you anything you want. It's just not going to do what you need because you haven't defined what you need yet. And this goes back to that solutionism that we've talked about. Correct. And, and again, it also goes to, and this is one of my critiques of Morozov's work, is that it also goes to what you define, first of all, as technology. And secondly, uh, if you if you think that that's a problem worth having or not, uh, there is this critique that not every problem should be solved. That's part of the solutionism. I tend to disagree with that aspect because mm-hmm. who am I to decide for others if that problem should be solved or not? Now, ultimately, right. it's on, on the user, right, which is why we do the things we do the way we do them, which will be the beneficiary. It will, it will tell you if you have product market fit. And maybe it, it turns out that there's fit for problems I didn't think worth solving. Well, that's that's not for me to decide. People will exactly. vote with their wallets. Um, and in, in regards for kind of projects, if a sponsor thinks that a problem needs to be solved, that a specific pain point that they have, uh, what, I, what I think, and it's important, is that we need to have a very expansive view of what the solution might be. That includes redefining what policy might be. And to your point, a, a, a production line, by the way, do you know how Henry Ford came up with the production line? He actually, no, I, do, I, I, I don't know, actually. He saw, he saw how a cow would be put apart by butchers in, in, and, and cattle ranchers. So he thought, well, if they can do it to put apart a cow, why can't we do the same thing to put together a car? So it's almost taking one process in one space and applying it in another, in another context. And this is by far the most important invention that Henry Ford is remembered for. It's not the Model T. The Model T was a, an output of the production line, and a, right. a cheaper car. So... Putting together a great policy, a great SOP, a fantastic conops, a better process to do something, 
that's a solution that I would say is technological in nature and might totally. be as valid as putting code on Raspberry Pis. Exactly, and I think this is a thing that you have to you have to that you have to help the students understand is that there is an opportunity for us. You know, I was listening to NPR today. There's a great podcast uh, today. Um, on the radio and I'm listening and they're talking about children ask really great questions because they're not trying to sound smart yep. and they're not beholden to, uh, to, to scientific principles. So this was talking about physics. And one of the things was what would happen if two galaxies hit each other or mm -hmm. two universes? And it was like, you know, I have a physicist who's able to talk about this because it's just, it's a funny, it's a, it's a really funny idea to think about. Like there are no, what ifs we don't have to worry about what if, what if the whole, what if our sun was a black hole? What if it just happened? We don't have to worry about the what ifs. And I, the reason I bring this up is it's very interesting in our space. Our students are not beholden to the bureaucracy and the types of, um, you know, the jaded uh, project manager that sometimes exists in the government space because, hey, I've tried this. It hasn't worked. I can't get the support I need and, and all these things. Students need to know that. But the students can come up with a really innovative um, innovative approach to a, a problem domain because they're not living it, right? They're able to come in and say, well, you know, if you just did this, this could make your life that much easier and let the people in the government do what they do best. This is where students don't necessarily have to be confined to, well, it won't work for these bureaucratic reasons. That's 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 hogwash. Let them go and try to figure this out. I, I, I love the example and and I know that it's a cliche, but to be a little bit more like children, uh, it's it's not it's not a. a to say to be naive, or it, it means to be open to fresh mm -hmm. ideas. I mean, kids by by design, right? We were talking about the growth growth mindset. Well, mm -hmm. they're made to. Their brains are growing. Right? They're not done developing. They have no preferred preferred prefrontal cortex fully formed until the late twenties, which is why we do all the stuff that we do in our teen years. <laughs> so uh, they by design have a growth mentality, and their whole their their whole job, if you think about it, somebody. Uh, a, a great uh, 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 child psychologist told me the job of the parents is to set safety rules, not necessarily learning rules, but safety rules. Uh, the job of the kids is to push the, those boundaries, right? And, mm -hmm. and to expand them. And in that regard, the job of discovery is to get out, fight against shyness and discomfort and whatever it comes when you are occupying a problem that you don't know at the beginning. Ask the basic question that you would think makes you sound stupid. They don't. They just make you sound interested and mm -hmm. learning. <laughs> and if you did it right, at the end of the process, you'll be an expert on, on, on that topic. Absolutely. So I think this is a, a really great point for us to, to break on this one. I think we could probably talk about solutioneering and all these things uh, ad nauseum. But the point really is that we we have an opportunity to kind of get out in front of this with yep. uh, as, as faculty. And I think it's an important point here is that you have to be vigilant of it and you have to warn your students because if you don't, then you're going to ultimately, I guess the, the question is to be, a, uh, you know, kind of the pragmatist here is, well, why do this? If you know what the solution is and the students know what the solution is or the sponsor knows what the solution is, why are we bothering? And yep. that's really what we have to kind of get to the heart of. So this now, is an important topic because now, it, it, the implications are far reaching. Exactly. They'll get it at the beginning, by the way. Most of them, first two classes are primed to understand. It's by class third that solutioning really kicks in because now I know it, right? So in many ways, it's that, that, that path that takes them towards not knowing nothing and having that humility to knowing enough to be, to be uh, uh, committed to a solution before they understand the problem. 
Absolutely. So I think those are really good words to kind of close us out on. So uh, uh, as always, uh, thank you again to the Common Mission Project for their support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems and in doing so create vibrant and diverse ecosystems where government, academia and industry build partnerships around problems, prototypes and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. Rodrigo, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again today. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. We'll see you on the next one.